Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hi, this is Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business and Forbes.com. Did you know that recent LCI podcast guest Michael Munger is an expert on unicorns? To find out more, stay tuned. Our guest today is Sean Malone, who is the director of media at the Foundation for Economic Education. Sean studied music performance and composition for film and multimedia at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and New York University, and he has worked in various creative and producing roles in New York and Los Angeles. Sean's films had been featured in the mainstream media and throughout the free market educational community, and he's here today to talk with us about how not to be fooled by the media and how to promote liberty with media. Sean, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, you know, when I get on Facebook, you're one of my friends on Facebook, and you're pretty prolific, and you talk about what's going on in the media a lot and what sort of annoys you about how a certain article is written or an ad was produced or things like that. And I'm sure with me, you can sort of sense the tension on social media is pretty palpable about the fr like the people's frustration about how the media works. And I'm, yeah. I guess in some ways, we're going to talk about media in two different ways. One is like the generic term of like how to use media as art to promote liberty, which we'll talk about later. And then the other is like the mainstream media, uh, the news media and outlets of things like that. So we're going to kind of talk about that first. Uh, so, you know, I woke up this morning and my wife was reading something and she goes, wait, so now I can't even trust Snopes.com because some <laughs> controversy. I didn't even read the article that she was talking about. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've already known this for like several years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't. Snopes is one of these weird things. And I, I mean, geez, I don't I don't know if, if uh, we, we can get into Snopes all we want here. But the, Snopes is funny because Snopes has always been a, a, a sort of a weird um, a weird source, honestly, because it's only it used to be run by like a couple. Um, just like two people for a long time and still got a very, very small staff. Um, their, their own political convictions are pretty clear. They've, they've been pretty outspoken about a lot of that kind of stuff. And while it's great to have fact checkers, it's also actually really good to have a lot of different fact checkers that come from a, a, a wide range of political perspectives and philosophical perspectives. And for the, you know, the last 10 years or so, it just feels like everybody just drops a Snopes link as if that is the be all and end all of, right. of all fact checking. And it's always kind of cracked me up because it's uh, – facts are – and I think we should get into this probably a lot more. Facts are not as obvious as uh, as they often appear. And also, um, as a lot of my academic friends say, facts don't interpret themselves. Right. So that's it's always been a problem with Snopes. They will 
Well, and I feel like in our culture, we've we've gone beyond the need for just simple fact checking. You know, like the, the Snopes phenomenon, I mean, it's been around for at least a decade. And it's, it kind of came out when people were sending, you know, what is the, the precursor to sharing articles on Facebook was like forwarding emails that were supposed yeah. to outrage your cousins. And they were supposed to forward it along so that more people would be outraged. And then finally somebody would come along and say, yeah, this isn't really true. She never said that or whatever, whoever we're talking about. And, um, you know, sometimes things are simple, like, no, that never was on record or no, that's just false <laughs> yeah. information. But, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Now we have, uh, you know, very nuanced uh, discussions about whether or not minimum wage does this or that. And then, I mean, you can't you can't just weigh in and say, well, that's just false or that's just true because facts are they're not obvious. Yeah. And, you know, Snopes has a has a history of this kind of stuff. The You know, the Washington Post obviously has their sort of three Pinocchios or Pinocchio based based system for for fact checking. And and all of these things seem like they're very simple or or very, um, very clear a lot of the time. I mean, Snopes, the way Snopes rates stuff, you know, uh, pants on fire, like a- absolutely false, like all of these kinds of things, which kind of does this true or false. But one of the things that you kind of start to realize as you look at these different fact checkers is you see a couple of things. First of all, you see which stories they choose to fact check or which uh, statements they choose to fact check versus which they ignore, right? Which is one area where you'll see a discrepancy and, and maybe a little bit of bias kind of creeping in. But the other thing is when you have a fact checking system that is inherently subjective, when you, let's say you have a five Pinocchio rating system, right? How do you decide how to compare two different kinds of of uh, false statements, right? Because a lot of times, false statements, especially political statements, are not um, they're they're not necessarily uh, binary, right? It, it's not it's not inherently true or false. It's very rare that somebody says something like there are 127 states in the United States, and you get to go, okay, well that's that's wrong. There are 50 you know, true or false. Right. Got it. Right. A lot of political statements are, as you said, they're, they're a lot more nuanced than that. Then they are built on people's varying levels of interpretation of data, of facts, of events that require a lot of context to really understand. Um, a lot of times I think with Trump, the interesting thing with Trump for me is that he has a way of speaking that is almost always hyperbolic or uh, in some way exaggerated. Mm-hmm. But but it always gets weird to me when you start saying he's lying about this and that. Sometimes, you know, clearly that that is the case. But sometimes people will fact check something that Trump says that's just a turn of phrase or something that's meant to be dramatic or something that's that's you know, nobody really believes is a literal. Yeah, he's statements. using some sort of rhetorical flourish to make a point. Yeah, and then when you fact check those kinds of things and you say, okay, well, he he lied about this because he said, you know, there has never been another president as great as me in the history of the world. And you go, oh, well, okay. I mean, I, I don't know how you fact check a claim <laughs> like that. Um, you know, but he'll say stuff like that. He'll say, you know, oh, this is this is the best, right? It's huge. It's it's the like all of these things that become sort of synonymous with with Trump language are a lot of times really superlative uh, exaggerations, right? Like they're dramatic exaggerations. And 
I don't I don't consider those things to be that threatening or that worrisome in general. Like I I don't worry about those kinds of things. Where I'd worry is is if Trump said, you know, something like we have no plans to engage in nuclear war, and then yet they indeed did have plans to engage in nuclear war. Like, that would worry me a great deal, right? right? But, um, yeah, it's... but So this gets back to the point to me, which is that if you have a rating system where you're rating somebody as, like, pants on fire false because they used a, a... like a dramatic exaggeration, but then on the other hand, you rate somebody else's equally exaggerated claim as, you know, like, let's take a, a, a classic, um, you know, you can keep your, if you like your plan, you can keep it. The, the classic Obama, um, claim about a, Obamacare. Right. And then if you hem and haw over it and you say, well, this is partly true because at the time this is what he thought or whatever, like all that kind of stuff. I don't know if there's any actual way for human beings to, I mean, very fallible human beings, right, to to rate those things objectively and then to come up with a rating system that is as clear as a lot of those rating systems right. often often appear. Right. I wouldn't call that, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt in that case, I was never assuming he was lying about that. He probably had every good intention to allow that to be the case, but circumstances beyond his control, you know, sure. the natural world and econo economics and stuff like that made it impossible. And he couldn't have foreseen that because would he know or something along those lines, like lying? Yeah, I, it's not lying. It's uh, that's yeah. that's the thing. I think there are a lot of ways to to interpret a statement like that. And look, I, I, I think I, I don't know what Obama knew or did know what, what we do know. I mean, is not to go down a rabbit hole of, of ancient sure. history. We, <laughs> we did know that 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 Jonathan Gruber, who's one of his advisors and architects of, of Obamacare, did know that that was not likely um, at, at that time. But I don't know what Obama knew. Right. And I don't know that Obama. I mean, that you're, you're absolutely right. What he was saying may or may not have been something that he meant to be deceptive about. And when you get into that territory of trying to judge whether or not people are actually uh, intentionally deceiving versus they just didn't know or they, you know, misspoke or they were being dramatic or, or all of those kinds of things, you can see where relying on these kinds of fact checkers is is not always a great strategy. Yeah. Well, that brings up the larger question of trust. I mean, as soon as you have somebody who doesn't trust Obama, just for whatever reason, they're going to call him a liar. And if people don't trust Trump, they're going to call him a liar, even if it's just an opinion being spouted that happened to turn out to be wrong or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it seems to me that that's filtering down to just everyday mistrust in news sources, news headlines. I mean, these headlines, I can't believe how misleading they are. And I just yeah. don't I just don't trust things like I'll read a headline and I'll and I'll, I'll read the article and like the second to last paragraph sort of disproved the actual headline itself. You know, they like bury the real data or the real sort of situation and context. And, you know, it's all clickbait. It's just more more uh, elo eloquent clickbait than the BuzzFeed stuff. Yeah, and you, clickbait's got an interesting history too because – so I've been doing media production work for 
well, pretty much my entire adult life. I started as a, as a musician and composer and working on, um, actually when I was in grad school, I worked at, as a, a music supervisor for a commercial music production house in, in Manhattan. We did advertising. And so I've been around that world for, for 15, well, you know, yeah, over 15 years now. And then I've been a producer of, you know, uh, videos and podcasts and, and all kinds of stuff like that for the last, uh, 10, you know, straight, uh, to, to doing, doing the kind of work that I do now. And, um, so I, and I, and I worked as a, as a video journalist uh, for a while and all of this stuff has been growing and, uh, it's been like a little arms race of, headline writing and article writing and, and video production. And this arms race has always been like, how do we get the most clicks and how do we get the, the greatest number of eyeballs as quickly as possible? And in the, especially in the early days of, of like YouTube and Facebook and all that kind of stuff, it, it almost seems quaint to what it is today because a lot of the clickbait was very obvious. The stuff where it would be like, I bet you don't know who said this insane thing or, you know, like, right. like 10, 10 thing, ways yeah, right. to whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and the fifth one will blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. And th this will blow your mind or whatever. And everybody would look at that stuff and go, this is, this is ridiculous. We all know that the, the fifth thing is going to be just as boring as the, the first, you know, one through four or whatever. But we all got sort of used to, um, you know, the way that Upworthy started writing stories and the way that, that um, BuzzFeed started writing stories and all that kind of stuff. And then that clickbaity quality kind of permeated into, you know, into everything else because it was actively successful. I mean, it was very successful, right? Like it was – if you wanted to see what people were sharing and sending to their peers – and thus the stuff that was actually getting ad revenue, it was all that kind of content. And it's, I think it's a little more sophisticated now, but I think that the, the essence of it where it's almost every article or headline is, is designed to play on some visceral emotion, some, some fear, some sense of status seeking, some sense of, of, um, you know, personal. Um, a lot of times it's, it's interesting, sorry, not to go on another tangent here, but D Tucker Carlson once said to me, I, I had asked Tucker Carlson a long time ago, what in his experience were the kinds of stories that did very, very well? Like what, if I was to look for a category of story that had a really high chance of being widely shared and successful. And his response to me was something that I'll, it's, it's in my email box. Uh, and I, but I will never forget what he wrote. Cause he wrote just one sentence back and he said, uh, <laughs> let's see if I can do this in the right order here, but sex, death, celebrity, mystery, weight loss, I'm missing one, violence, and weather. Those were those seven traits, basically those seven topics. I would say that was Tucker, the bulk. Of, that was the whole of his email response to you. Uh, no, he, he, it was oh, okay. in, in it was in sentence form. But that those those oh, okay. seven, he said those were those were the thing. But it was literally just a one sentence reply. It was, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Here's the seven things, basically, and uh, and I thought and it, and so the the hilarious thing to me was. Maybe a, a couple weeks, it couldn't have been much more than a couple weeks after he and I had this exchange. I was at the grocery store 
and I saw a, a tabloid magazine, like a you know UK Mirror or something like that, and it and it literally the entire front page was dominated by the words celebrity sex death mystery. That was the headline. And I was like, oh my God, like four out of the seven is literally is the headline, right? <laughs> so he was right. He was right. Yeah. A hundred percent right. Yeah. And, and the reality is if you really think about what that stuff means, it means that we're all kind of motivated by these visceral concerns. You know, we, we like, um, the idea of feeling like we know more than other people, we have higher status than other people. We, we like looking into the lives of people with higher status than, than us, right? We like that celebrity thing, uh, violence and, and mysteries that they, and death, like they all play on our, our deepest fears, right? They play on, on the unknowns of life and the things that we're, we're all very worried about and concerned about. Um, you know, weather is, is a visceral thing. It's something that you have to know about, you know, on, it's going to affect your day in a really direct kind of way. And I think that over the, over time, you know, what used to be pretty straightforward news has sort of caught on to what tabloids understood decades ago, which was that you will sell a lot more papers. You'll get a lot more clicks if you play up on one of these visceral emotions. Do you think that 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 sort of evolution or shifting has increased the amount of distrust people have? Because to some extent, it still works. But on the other hand, people are onto it a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I I totally think that it's affected the way that people trust me. And part of why I think it's affected that is because they, even though it's it's always going to work because you are playing on somebody's somebody's actual emotions. It's very hard for a lot of people when they get that emotional response to not react to it, right? Um, it, it, it we don't have to go into. I mean, there's there's a lot of brain science around this, and, mm-hmm. and um, there's this thing called amygdala an, an amygdala hijack, which is essentially your amygdala is where all of your your emotional responses come from, right? So the people a lot of times call it the lizard brain or whatever, the oldest part of your brain. And it's, it's the part where, where all of your fight or flight instinct kind of takes place. Right. And a lot of times once that fight or flight feeling kicks in, the amygdala hijack is that it basically takes over the rest of your responses. And it's very hard to back off on that. You have to be real careful about allowing that to take over because otherwise you will you'll go into this sort of cascade of of fear and you'll do the thing that that's I mean it's meant it's it it's there for a good reason right it's there <laughs> <Right>. because <laughs> if something is attacking you you like you should do something about it but the problem is you can really easily uh, tweak that response when you are telling somebody that, uh, you know, the, your kids are like it, it, local news has done this for, for decades, right? Like, uh, are your kids safe at the local swimming pool? Find out at 11, right? <laughs> You're like, Oh my God, my kids aren't safe at the pool. I'm going to have to tune in and find out. But I think when you do that endlessly and when everything is so breathless and everything is so incredibly, uh, you know, heightened in, in terms of like everything is, a, is immediate, urgent problem. It's life or death. It's, you know, um, 
politicians that we don't like are are evil. You know, not uh, not I disagree with this guy because he's got ideas that I don't like or because I think his facts are wrong or whatever. But no, actively Hitler, right? Orange hmm. Hitler. You know, um, th- that. That becomes the boy who cried wolf at some point. That becomes a problem where you can't yeah. escape the fact that all of these hyperbolic claims ultimately don't materialize in the way that you've you've presented them. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the some some more specific recent things. I mean, we're recording here in early 2019, and there have been several uh, media stories that have played out more than a couple days or a couple weeks. I mean, one, one right now is coming to light that there was like this made up assault. Uh, we're, we're about a month away from the confrontation from the, the Catholic high school kid and the native American veteran. Uh, we have, we have a whole bunch of like things coming that have, we've experienced in, in our recent, in our recent, uh, I don't know. It, it's recent, even in the Trump uh, t- uh, time warp <laughs> sense yeah, of recent. Yeah. Like, I remember these things. And honestly, it's yeah. why it's your commentary on Facebook is why I want to talk to you more formally about this. It's kind of nuts, right, that, that the Covington thing is uh, a month old and it feels like ancient news now. You're you're totally right. And the only thing that makes it feel not quite so ancient is, I think, because there's now a lawsuit involved. Lawsuit, and that's like yeah. a couple days, you know, yeah. after or whatever. But um, so what... <laughs> It's a thought I had a few minutes ago as you were explaining this amygdala hijack is that it almost feels like if you can be sort of first to market, so to speak, as a news agency and you can you can hijack the collective sense of outrage, then that'll carry you for a few days, maybe only a few hours if you're unlucky, but probably a few days. And then it may not even matter if if all of that fizzles out, like you have to, to some extent you might take your chances, but like if you can post the story and provoke the outrage, you get all the attention and, and possibly more, you know, more profit. Yeah, um, absolutely. That seems to be what happened with the, with the Covington high school student, because I mean, you and I have a mutual friend who, who had a mea culpa the next day. Like he was outraged. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's, that's absolutely the thing. If you could be first, first to market on a lot of these stories. I mean, we, we can talk about Covington. Um, I, I think the, the media was, I, you know, we can talk about what the media means here in a minute, but like the, the way that most reports treated that story was as if a 90 second clip of film out of a two hour event was 100% of the information available, all you needed to know, and whatever was was just on the surface of that, however it appeared, however Nathan Phillips presented it to, to other people, that's all there was to it. And that's great because it was super outrageous, right? Like y- you couldn't get a better – at least if you're going for a narrative, if your narrative says and your kind of mo- motivating narrative says that, that Trump supporters are – you know, racist. They're bigots. They're they're smug. bad. They're smug. They're rude people. They're they're bad, right? They're just generally kind of jerks because we think we we sort of project all of what what we think about Trump. Like Trump is all of these things. Therefore, everyone who could have ever supported Trump or voted for Trump must also be all of the things that we're projecting. Or whose parents voted for Trump? Like or, the kid couldn't or, even vote for yeah, Trump. Yeah. Yeah, for 15, 16-year-old kids, yeah, their parents or whatever. 
Um, look, we we have all these assumptions, these these heuristics that we make, and and I think this is probably relevant to a lot of your listeners. Be, you know, Christians and Catholics and and people like we think. Okay, the Catholic high school boys. These this is a boys' school. This is you know, toxic masculinity writ large. Like, th- th- these are the kinds of things that I heard in the wake of, of all of that, right? And again, all based on, you know, 90 seconds of of wildly out of context, it turned out, video, right? And um, it, I, yeah, I think that, that it didn't matter a whole lot to the Washington Post or to a lot of the sort of blue checkmark people on Twitter who shared all of this stuff. It didn't really matter because what they were going for ultimately was that initial hit of outrage got all the clicks and all of the shares from their from their sources. I think the same thing is true if you look at the, the Jesse Smollett story and the way that TMZ broke the news. You know, um, that that first uh, and it's and it's very similar. I mean, that's, that's what's insane to me about both of those stories is that they both really relied on the media to have a particular narrative that they were seeking to confirm. Right. Like the, neither of those stories gets any. By the way, the Covington High School story is is kind of nuts to me because actually nothing of interest happened. Um, if you think about it from an actual news standpoint, you think, okay, what's relevant to our viewers? What's relevant to our listeners? Whatever. Um, what is something of great national importance that's going to affect people's lives? Is there anything? And then you really break down, like, did anything happen in that story that mattered to anyone? Because um, ultimately, all that really happened was there were some boys waiting for a a bus to come pick them up. They were kind of being harassed by some notable black Hebrew Israelite guys who were incredibly awful and racist and bigoted themselves. But of course we can't talk about that. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and then all that actually happened was 90 seconds of awkwardness with another protester. (laughs) No, no punches were thrown. No one was arrested. No one was, injured or, you know, there's no national significance. There's nothing, there's no, there's nothing to that story except for the tribal outrage, right? The only part of that story was a white kid, smug white kid wearing a MAGA hat is rude to a Native American. And that, that's a story that sells itself. Yeah. Only in the age of outrage can 90 seconds of awkwardness become newsworthy. (laughs) Yeah. Just like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. No, there is there is that uh, sort of like that's the purpose it served. I mean, that really yeah. that's where we are. And I think that's a that's a pretty shocking indictment of where we are as a culture. I mean, some of us and, and again, I am prey to this as well. I mean, I've made mistakes in terms of like posting things and stuff sure. or or just believing things and then realize and maybe I didn't share them publicly and I had to you know, I spared myself an embarrassment from not doing that. But I think I've learned my lesson. Like, I'm like, wait a second. Uh, this doesn't look quite right. Like I first saw the picture of of the kid, and I'm like, okay, I could totally get why people think he is, is the way too. he is. However, they're being told that this is what he was doing, that he was being disrespected, because that's what the title of the YouTube video was underneath right, the actual right. video. And I'm like, wait a second, that's not a, that's a pretty bad title. Like it's not guaranteed that he's being disrespectful to a to a veteran who. No, no, not at all. And and that's that you're 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 touching on this thing. Framing matters tremendously, 
right? Like the way that you frame. So the image itself is whatever it is. It's a kid who's, you know, awkward and maybe he's embarrassed or maybe he's not sure how to react and he's smiling in a weird way. And first of all, uh, take it from somebody who's taken hundreds of thousands of of photos over the years professionally, who's who's edited literally over probably 1,500, 2,000 videos in the last, you know, eight years or so. People, anytime people talk or act, they look weird. Like there are moments you can, oh, yeah. you can you can pause a frame almost anywhere in a video and get a really weird look out of somebody's face, right? So I I am in particular very skeptical of using a single image, especially pulled from a video, a, a screenshot of a video, or a you know a freeze frame from a video, yep. because everybody everybody mid conversation makes weird faces. Everybody mid, um, you you know, gesture makes weird faces. So I don't particularly put a lot of stock in that. But when you frame that weird look as smug, you know, Trump supporter berating Native American, that that in turn affects the way that everybody's going to see it because it puts a it puts a specific uh, motive Mm -hmm. to it. And now you're seeing that because yeah. you've been it's it's framed in your mind like that's what this is that's what I'm seeing and then it becomes really hard not to see any other way. So I'm with you. I saw I saw that that video and I saw the image and all that kind of stuff and I saw all the headlines and I just happened to be I think I actually lucked out somewhat uh with this because I happened to be editing another video. It's real late at night and I had seen the images of of uh, Nicholas Sandman, and I, but I didn't have time to watch the video, and I I don't I don't tend to get into the sort of out, outrage stuff, so I I could wait, like I, I knew that, but it kept popping up and people were talking about it. It was kind of big news. So a few hours later, after it, the story had broken and that the video was getting shared all over the place, I I watched it. And from what I was reading from everybody's descriptions versus what I actually saw in that 90 seconds were so incongruous to me that, mm-hmm. that my when I shared the video, I shared it with a question. I was like, I, is there more? Am I missing yeah. context? Because people were saying this kid is racist and he's saying that they were saying build the wall and uh, build a wall or whatever, all this stuff. None of it was in the 90 second video. So I was like, and they were like, they got in his face and I'm like, I don't, I don't see what you're seeing. So I asked the internet to, to help me to provide additional information, to provide the proof that this kid was this smug, you know, racist jerk, whatever that everybody was saying he was. And, uh, when I did that, I got a a comment section just flooded with people going, no, here's the long video. Nothing that they're saying happened, happened the way that they're claiming and, it very, very quickly. Yeah, it, there were. It, it became clear. That, and not only that, there were like several videos. Like we kind of yeah. got, we kind of got lucky on that event, which honestly yeah. shed light on a lot of things. Um, yeah, it just it shed light on a lot of things. And I was, you know, I I have I have uh, friends that are on like the other side of the spectrum who get kind of triggered for the reasons that these videos actually came out. And he was he, even he was like, um, 
yeah, I'm still waiting on this one. This one's a little, this one's a little puzzling because it's, we don't have enough. And I'm like, well, kudos to you for not sharing something before. <laughs> yeah. I'm always, I'm always super proud of people. Uh, and, and really like my level of respect for people goes way up whenever I see somebody take that step back when there's something that, that would really confirm their political biases, you know, and, and take that, that step and that moment, the beat, you know, just take a moment. Mm-hmm and say, okay, this looks bad, but is this really what I'm seeing here? Is there more information? Is there something else that adds context to this that I don't understand before I rush into, you know, outrage posts and anger and, you know, and God, what happened to those, those kids, you know, death threats and having celebrities call for them to be doxxed and having, you know, their, their school, you know, people, uh, um, whatever, writing messages to the Catholic Church saying like they they should shut down the school and and all of this kind of stuff, and it's just like, but they were doing this within ninety seconds of seeing this video, you know, like yeah. they've seen this thing and then moments later they're going, uh, we need to arrest this child, like we need, we need to go find him and figure <laughs> out what his name is and we need to go to his house and you're like, it's a kid, like cal- calm down. Like, like even is, if they're right about what they think happened, like chill out a little bit. And yeah, it's yeah. not even, it wouldn't even be a crime. <laughs> like it wouldn't even <laughs> right. be something that I would worry about. It would just be, yeah, okay. A 15 year old was kind of rude to a guy. Well, yeah, he's a high school kid. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, no, not for nothing. When I was in high school, we'd go to movies and then my, you know, friends of mine or people that I went to high school with would throw candy at the screen. Like the kids are jerks. Like that's just kind of how kids are. And, uh, it, you know, like I don't, I don't really feel like we should rush to ruin somebody's life over that, even if that were the case, right? Like it would be a weird thing to try to destroy somebody's uh, future prospects over. You know? Yeah. So you're basically just saying boys will be boys, right? Oh, yeah. Boys, <laughs> boys will be boys. Let's, let's segue to something else that's <laughs> right on that topic. Uh, oh, I know where you're going. Oh, you do. Um, so, well, actually, before I do that, yeah, we're going to talk about the Gillette ad. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that I, you know, the, the Covington School <laughs> boys uh, in Washington, that phenomenon is pretty easy to kind of track what happened and what went wrong. There's 90, yeah. se- 90 second video, doesn't provide the whole context. People get outraged prematurely. And then later there's another video and another video and a longer video. And then there's other witnesses that that come in and testify. And then there's an admission by, is it Nathan Phillips, uh, that he didn't really serve in Vietnam. He just served as a veteran during that time. And like everybody's like starting to question this. So like you can kind of see in retrospect how it unfolds. And you say, oh, in this case, we didn't have enough information and we got outraged too soon. And right. in one sense, that's a pretty easy example of what we can do to not be fooled by the media is just wait, take a deep breath, wait till morning. Don't do this at 1 a.m. and retweet stuff, retweet your outrage that you think is happening, even if it's true or even if your outrage is legit. 
that's one way of doing it. But there's other types of media presentation that we see that we don't really know what's going on. We don't really know what's being influenced. I mean, there was the I think there was the debate. This is probably back in like November. There's some footage that the White House released and people were saying it was doctored versus not. And slump, somebody it, getting the you, Jim, Jim Acosta video, which I actually did a breakdown of. Yeah. And so you, I remember reading your opinion. And you're like, I do this all the time. I've, you know, your whole like spiel on how much editing you've done. You're like, this is this yeah. is not this is not like people just don't know what they're talking about. When they, no. when they do this. So there's those kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah. You actually, I want you to break that down just briefly on that. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the Acosta video for a second. Like people were going nuts over, over the Acosta video. Cause they were saying, so what, what happened was for, for people that don't really remember this is that, um, the Jim Acosta, if you recall the, the moment where he actually got kicked out of the white house press corps was based on a moment where he was sort of bogarting the mic um, he wouldn't, there was a, there's a white house intern who was trying to take the mic back from him after he'd already asked a couple questions and, uh, and Acosta tried to avoid giving that mic back. Now, I think both sides got this pretty, I mean, both sides went a little bit nuts on this because the, the left kind of did the thing where they said that Trump had doctored a video or, or Trump was sharing a doctored video because, um, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders had tweeted, had, had retweeted a version of the video that, that was on, uh, it was, somebody had probably tweeted her. Um, and that, that video had some, uh, it had a, a, rep a repeated part where it was slowing. They, they claimed that it slowed down or actually they claimed that it was sped up, which was funny because it was actually slowed down, which is hilarious. But they, they claimed that they, they had sped up the video to make it look like Acosta's hand had come down on this intern's arm harder than it did. So that was like the left side of it. Then on the other side, like Trump's administration at one point said something that Acosta tried to assault this girl and it was just – no, neither of those things happened. Like what actually happened was just that a, a video got shared on Twitter and and just compressed as you do when you when you compress video so that it can actually stream over low bandwidth mediums and it just had some artifacts in it. I, I went through it frame by frame because I got really curious. I was like, look, I uh, I am eminently qualified to review this. This is what I've done for a living. Um, since 2002, 2003, yeah, 2002. And, uh, I, you know, I've been an editor since then and I, I edit, you know, 60 hours a week and have for the last 10 years. Um, I, I, you know, and I went through and it was, there was nothing wrong with it. In fact, the only thing that actually happened was that the, you started getting drop frames in the video, which didn't speed it up. didn't make it look like Acosta was, was moving faster. It actually made it look like he was moving slower, which really wouldn't do any good if you're trying to, um, if you're trying to doctor it to make him seem like he was being more aggressive. So, um, and, and all of that was just a, it's just an artifact of bad compression. It just nothing, there's nothing there. There was no there there at all. Uh, but of course, also when I looked at it, I realized that Acosta wasn't assaulting the girl. He's just trying to hang on to the mic. So uh, both sides are doing this sort of political, partisan, tribal gamesmanship where they're they're trying to make the other side look bad. And, and both were kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Making the other side look bad. That's sort of the game now. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it, yeah, you're right. Tribal is the word to use. And I, I think there's. 
there's some benefit in the concept of tribalism, but in the, in the way that we're doing it and the way that it's become, it's just like, yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's make, it's bringing out the worst in a lot of us. I agree with you. I, I tribalism is something that I try to avoid a lot, but I, I agree that there are, there's some benefit to group solidarity, right? Like there's some benefit to having a community that you belong to that, that is loyal to you in some way, you know, but when that takes precedence over truth and over honesty and takes precedence over even sort of basic ethics, like when you're willing to go after a child because they aren't in your tribe, does it wearing a hat that signifies something that you hate? Like, what are we doing at that point? Like that's gone wildly too far. Hi, it's Art Carden again. A little bit ago, I asked you whether you knew that Mike Munger, a recent LCI podcast guest, was an expert on unicorns. One of my favorite essays of the last several years is a short piece for the Foundation for Economic Education that Dr. Munger wrote on government as unicorn. And in it, he argued that a lot of times when we talk about what the government should do, we're really talking about something that is about as mythical as a unicorn. And that something is a government that doesn't respond to incentives, a government that has only the public interest at heart, or a government that has all of the information that it needs to make truly wise public policy. In an article I wrote for Forbes.com several years ago, I proposed what I called the Munger Unicorn Scale that allows us to evaluate public policies, or at least to ask about the unicorn assumptions underlying any public policy. It ranges from zero unicorns, which says you generally agree with Frederick Bastiat that the state is the great fiction by which everyone tries to live at the expense of everyone else, to five unicorns, which says it's the final crisis of capitalism, Charlie Brown, and the socialist utopia is right around the corner. So when you observe someone trying to offer a public policy or trying to analyze a public policy, ask, where does this policy fit on the unicorn scale? And the more unicorns, the more skeptical you should be. For more practice with the economic imagination, visit libertarianchristians.com slash artcarded. And now back to the episode. Yeah, well, that's, that's, yeah, you're right. I, I have no follow-up on that comment. So <laughs> now let's, let's talk about the Gillette ad. Uh, yeah, your your analysis of that was, you know, it was interesting to me, and I want to hear what you have to say because I, I almost didn't watch the ad, but then I'm like, nah, it just it got the better of me, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this, and I didn't really see quote unquote anything wrong with it, except one little thing, which was that the very beginning they're like, well, now that there's a Me Too movement, we can join it, uh, with with the exception <laughs> of something like that, like oh well, now yeah. we'll be now we'll be outspoken about it, like they are deliberately virtue signaling from the beginning. But outside of that, I'm like, well, of course we don't want toxic toxic men, and we don't yeah. want and we don't want just this excuse boys will be boys as if that were just an excuse for letting them you know subjugate women or treat women or any other man with disrespect. Right. I, I, I totally agree with that. And it's, it's funny. What got, what got me interested in that video was more the reaction to it, um, than the, than the video itself. Like, I, I think the video itself hadn't really, you know, to me, I would have probably ignored it as something that was like annoying corporate virtue signaling. Um, that stuff irritates me just I think like it probably irritates most people because it's so false. Like it's just I don't think really most people at Gillette care a whole lot about this. Um, I think as you said, I think they're being incredibly opportunistic about – like Gillette didn't lead the way here. They didn't, they didn't right. do this before the Me Too movement or before any of that kind of stuff became popular. They're They're just jumping on – 
um, you know, jumping on a bandwagon that's yeah. already kind of ex- existing. But I had a lot of people who I knew and mostly either people on the – well, I actually was pretty clear about this when I was writing. It's a weird split. Most of the the real like progressives and, and leftists that I know – and I actually have a, a large number of friends who fit into that category. They – they got it. I think they got that this was signaling to them. They got that the, the toxic masculinity, the the Me Too, the, a lot of the framing. You know, we talked about framing earlier, and framing comes into play in the Gillette, Gillette ad a ton. I mean, you look at the the race of the various people, the the age, you know, uh, the context of all this stuff. Um, we're very visual animals, right? Like we we see stuff and we connect emotion to memory, and and so all all of the way that you actually produce a video like this comes into play. It's not just the language used; it's it's every aspect of it. And so you look at this video, and if you are um, you know real conservative, you probably look at it and say this is really insulting to men, right? But uh, if you look, and also partly because the tribal language is all very progressive. It's me too. It's stuff that would deliberately trigger conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, even the toxic masculinity concept, I think, is sort of triggering in that sense. But it's also very triggering to liberals and they're very big fans of it. So I think both the the conservatives and the liberals really got it. The the ones that I had a lot of, lot of friends who didn't get it, and this was the weird part to me, was like a lot of sort of libertarians – I know, in particular, the sort of left-leaning kind of libertarian group um, posted a ton of stuff that was like, I don't see, I don't understand why anybody would dislike this. I have no idea. Mm-hmm, I just, mm-hmm. I can't imagine why anybody would have any, see anything wrong with this. And so I, I, I ended up like having a bunch of discussions with people about it over the course of a couple of days. And then I was like, look, I, I can explain this to you. Like every aspect of the video as you go through is deliberately like designed to appeal to progressives and in doing so they are speaking in a language that conservatives find to be pretty insulting and so and a lot of that comes in, into play with things like the boys boys will be boys moment in there um i think if you look at um what's actually happening in that scene you got a couple what seven eight year old kids kind of roughhousing at a, at a barbecue and then the the thing is, you know, one dad says boys will be boys and then it's a line of dads, you know, stretching into infinity, all chanting boys will be boys. And the whole context of this is to say that men and and this is where I want to be clear, like that's they're pretty much saying all men. Mm-hmm. But thus, you have an infinite line of men, right? Like if you're just saying one man out of a large group is saying something we don't like, then you'd have one guy. But no, you have the entire infinite line saying the thing that you don't like. Right, so right. it's pretty clear what they're going for here. And um, that obviously was insulting to a lot of people. I don't know why that's that shocking. Um, I, I think that I'm not saying that you should or should not be insulted necessarily, but I would say that as a piece of messaging, it was pr- pretty clear what they were trying to convey. And it it just – it baffled me the number of people that I talked to that didn't seem to pick up on the, the really obviously heavy-handed strategy that they had employed. So are you – you were saying you're not surprised – at the well, I'm not. I'm not surprised that that people were upset about it. Nor was I surprised that people who are of a sort of a leftist 
bent, uh, loved it. Like, I'm not surprised by either of that. Like it was very clearly targeted to people who were, you know, left, you know, kind of left leaning progressives and really targeted to sort of SJW kind of left social justice warrior kind of left. And, um, you know, that's pretty triggering to conservatives. It just baffled me that other people didn't, didn't just understand that that's what it was. Like there are a lot of people saying, saying. well, because a lot of the, a lot of the libertarian crowd I had talked to was like, yeah, but we want to live in a world where people don't beat each other up. I'm like, of course we do. Stand up for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Of course we do. Like there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing Uh, wrong with people, people getting into, uh, but, but I think where, where it started to go off the rails for me was that I, I would see people making this argument. They said, well, the only people who, who don't like this ad must be, uh, backwards thinking bigots who don't, who believe that we should just be beating each other up and, and sexually assaulting women and all right, that right. kind of stuff. So it became this, this once again, like if you don't understand why people are upset about it, it became a projection, uh, an opportunity for projection, I should say, of all of these nefarious motives on the, on the people who criticize it. So it became like, well, you don't like it you don't like an ad that, that rejects toxic masculinity because you support toxic masculinity. And you're like, well, no, it's not, it's not because any of these people didn't like, um, you know, wanted to go beat up women or whatever. Like that's not what they were objecting to. They were objecting to the very clear, uh, messaging of the video that was, that was designed to insult them. And I, I don't see why, and not again, not, not because, they all think men should do bad stuff, but because they think that men don't predominantly do this kind of bad stuff. Right. You know, like, like overwhelmingly men aren't, um, just excusing little children beating each other up. They're overwhelmingly not, uh, just okay with uh, sexual assault or abuse or, or bullying or all of that kind of stuff. Most of us don't like any of that kind of thing. Right. Like, I don't I don't know where we got this idea that the majority of the world is just waiting to to abuse other people. But like if you actually have relationships with people, it's pretty rare. I yeah. Mean, right. Like, how, how many people in your life like are toxic in, in that sense? Right. Yeah. Well, I think there's it's it's weird. It's like you can you can analyze this and critique it for its for its, uh, stereotyping. I mean, isn't the left constantly telling us not to stereotype, uh, people, but it's okay to stereotype white males um, or something like that. But on the other hand, it's like, well, we, we do, it's like, well, okay, well, I guess my little bit of sympathy for the ad is like, well, if we all just like (laughs) get over our outrage for just a moment and just let it like tell us, oh, I shouldn't be toxic. Maybe there's ways in which I'm toxic and I don't realize it. Um, and that, that involves some self-reflection. It doesn't necessarily need a Gillette ad to do that. Uh, cause I, 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 I should be doing that bigger, anyway. <laughs> that's maybe the bigger problem with the, like I said at the beginning, that's my personally, my actual beef with the ad is that I don't want to be preached at by Gillette. Like I, I yeah, don't. That's true. If I need Gillette to help me be self-reflective <laughs> about my toxic inclinations, if I have any at all, uh, yeah. then what does that say about me? <laughs> In the first place. Right. For me, what I, what I feel like is, is that I agree with you. I I think that if people could take it, um, 
as as it is on the surface without understanding all of the subtext and and kind of being insulted by the subtext of the ad then you know it just would have would have passed over and people would have said yeah okay I, whatever i kind of agree with that the, i think the problem in this particular case was that the subtext was so aggressive right like as a as a marketer as an advertiser as somebody who is writing and producing this kind of content um, you make all kinds of choices, right? Like you, your whole job is to make choices and decisions about what to show, what not to show, what words to include, what words not to include. And the Gillette ad very intentionally chose a lot of words, a lot of imagery, um, and a lot of ideas fundamentally that were going to be, um, kind of, in, I, I want to say insulting to conservatives because I want to be clear about what what I mean by this. Like it, it chose language that is synonymous with a, a very extreme strain of of the left, the sort of social justice warrior left, right? And anybody who's had any kind of contact with the that kind of group, um, I, I'm sure you're you're familiar more mm -hmm. or less. I mean. It conjures up all of those, all of those experiences. It conjures up Antifa. It conjures up the sort of radical uh, intersectional feminists who, you know, will will scream at men for having an opinion. It it it, it conjures up all of these things that it can't really separate itself from because it's part it's baked into the subtext of the ad so it's all part of that and I, one of the things i wrote sort of at length is is going back to marshall McLuhan and this idea that the medium is is the message right and people forget that like the the message that gillette like if you just took the G gillette script and you stripped it of all its imagery you know, or you just took some of the imagery and you said, look, hey, we don't want people beating each other up or chasing kids down the street, the gangs of bullies or whatever. Basically, everybody in the world would go, yeah, right. yeah, no, nobody wants that, right? But when you add to it all of this additional subtext, it becomes inescapable that it becomes a tribal thing. And I think that was conscious on Gillette's part. I think that they were targeting that they were targeting left wing kind of, uh, you know, consumers, I guess that's, that's who that ad was for. So I'm fine with it being for that group. I just think it's silly to not understand that when you do that, especially when you do that as, as extreme as they did, that you aren't going to alienate a bunch of other people. Right. Why are you surprised that you haven't, that, that some people are outraged? Yeah. And by the way, libertarians do this all the time and it, it drives me insane. It's, it's something that, that I've been – I mean it's really a major part of my career has been trying to help libertarian organizations understand that when they say things like taxation is theft or like every uh, government official is is a corrupt murderer, which you'll hear in sometimes in mm -hmm. you know, any president who's ever presided over a military action is now a, a complicit killer, right? Well, it turns out when you say inflammatory stuff that a lot of people don't agree with, they're going to get offended by it and not take you and, and not like what you're what you're presenting them. So it's not this isn't like a unique phenomenon. I mean, it's it's obviously like when we speak, we're speaking to a specific audience most of the time and and you know, but my thing is you have to be careful how you 
present messages so that you are aware of the fact that like just because you're getting a lot of likes from the target, you should be careful to try to avoid getting more dislikes from everybody else. Right? Yeah. Because your goal ultimately is to, to, to you know, increase the net gain of, of brand support. And I don't know if Gillette did that or not, but I suppose that, that remains to be seen. But well, they avoided having to pay for a Super Bowl ad. That, that is true. <laughs> they <laughs> gained true. at least a few million bucks from that. Uh, so Absolutely. Well, I thought I was going to have to hard pivot from what we were talking about to communicating properly, but you just kind of did that for me um, on how, our, how we communicate carefully our message. You've been doing uh, powerful media and video and film for the Liberty Movement at Fee and I'm guessing elsewhere. Um, so tell us a little bit about your experience there. Uh, yeah. That. Um, well, well, so it, it started, I'll actually go back sort of to the beginning cause I think it's sort of relevant here, which is, um, I, I was working in the music industry in Los Angeles and this, this would have been 2008, 2009. And, uh, my roommate at the time was working for a, a trailer house, a company that makes movie trailers. And he was an editor and this trailer house that he worked for, um, the owner of the trailer house was good friends with Hillary Clinton for whatever reason. She has a lot of Hollywood friends. And this just happened to be one of them. One of them, and so they ended up doing a um, an ad or a like a sort of a. I don't know what you would call it. I, I would call it an industrial, but I don't know if that term translates to anybody else. It's essentially like a, a an educational explainer for people inside a particular industry, but. Um, in this case, it was an ad uh, that was it intended to generate support for um, for basically more government spending on foreign aid uh, based on concerns with global warming and and food shortages in Africa and stuff like that. And this thing, and I watched this, and, and I watched as my my buddy was participating making it. It was it was narrated by Matt Damon. It, it had gorgeous cinematography. It had gorgeous music and it's about four minutes long. It's basically four minutes of Matt Damon saying that the world is going to end and the United States government needs to spend a whole bunch of money to stop the world from ending. And I watched this and then I would turn around and look at any kind of libertarian media, anything that would even remotely challenge that narrative, right? There was nothing. I mean, there was just nothing at all. And so I started making stuff. I, I thought at the time, the only thing that was available really, um, the, the Mises Institute had some old lectures that fee also actually had some old lectures that they probably filmed on a handy cam and, uh, you know, like put up on YouTube. Um, reason TV was just barely getting started at that point. Um, I don't know if anybody else remembers this, but Drew Carey was originally a, a major, uh, financer for the beginning of Reason TV. And so they had just done Reason Saves Cleveland with Drew. And um, that was it. That's that basically all there was. And none of it was particularly compelling. The Reason stuff was starting to get compelling, but there's nothing else that was very interesting. So I thought, well, look, I've been working in this industry for a long time. I, I've got some editing skills. I hadn't used them in a few years because I was just working in music. But I thought, you know, I think I can do this. So I took actually a fee article and I about um, sort of a Hayekian article about profits and what profits were uh, as a price signal and, and other kind of wonky stuff. And I turned it into a short, I think maybe it was like five or six minute video 
um, narrated with sort of motion graphics and whatever. And I, 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 I tried to do something that I thought was compelling. And I, you know, I, I don't know how many, it didn't get a ton of views, maybe six, 7,000 views, but it did okay. And I, um, and I sent it to the guy, to the author of the article and the author of that article, um, connected me with Larry Reed, who's the president of fee. And, and from there I started building, building a career on the back of that kind of stuff. And so for the last 10 years or so, all I've really been doing is trying to build, um, build media production capabilities, but more importantly, change the way that this space understands messaging, right. And understands how to communicate with people because for the most part, it had been very wonky, very academic. Um, a lot of times talking heads, economists just sitting on camera, just just straight to camera telling you what you were supposed to, to get out of some academic lesson. And of course, people don't learn that way overwhelmingly, right? Like very, very few people learn that way. So uh, I, I started to push for, for more narrative storytelling. I had done some documentaries and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, over the last decade or so, I've, I've certainly learned a lot about doing this kind of stuff. But also I've found that a lot of the obstacles still sort of remain. Like there are a lot of people at a lot of different organizations who do who are very uncomfortable telling emotionally relevant stories. They're, they're uncomfortable with producing content that is not – very strictly academic. And I, I, I honestly, I think that's a shame because I think that's one of the areas where we kind of fail. So what is, what's your favorite kind of content to produce? Well, boy, I've done so much. I would say actually probably my favorite things, there are a couple, there's the, the larger scale documentaries I've done. There are a couple that I'm incredibly proud of. There was one that I shot, uh, inside a prison in Texas, um, to which was about a program called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. Um, they teach inmates. Uh, there are inmates who are within a couple years of release, and they teach them uh, entrepreneurship and business skills. They teach them how to create a business plan, pitch, uh, you know, pitch in possible investors. They teach them how to you know create value in the context of of a market, and their recidivism rate is considerably lower. I think their recidivism rates like six percent when Texas overall is about twenty five percent. Their their guys are actually getting out and getting jobs. One of their guys, maybe a couple of them, are millionaires now. Um, it's, it's an incredible program. And I was, I was super thrilled to be able to do a documentary about that. And then recently at fee, I, I executive produced a documentary on Magat Wade, who's an entrepreneur who's bringing the, the ideas of entrepreneurship and free markets to Senegal, to, to Africa, where, where, you know, there's very little of that kind of stuff happening. And, it, you know, she grew up there or she was born there, I should say. And it's very important to her that she brings back, you know, economic success to an area that's very tightly restricted and controlled. And so those are the things I'm probably most proud of. But honestly, some of the most fun stuff is like I used to to work with Remy Minosophy on Go Remy videos and just doing funny music videos and stuff. And so there's, it's a wide range, but I, I love all that kind of stuff. So you, you've been doing this for about a decade or so in terms of like just the Liberty space. And I know that there's a lot of 
newcomers to either the liberty movement or like they're coming into their own in terms of like what they want to do professionally and they might want to follow in your footsteps and create good media and there's a lot of good libertarian stuff out there i mean i remember now like 12 13 years ago when i sort of transitioned to being a libertarian i'm like like the Keynes hayek rap video was like the first big thing that came out of anything and then definitely and i wasn't even i don't think i knew about reason tv at that point but i do remember drew carey being a big you know like well-known libertarian uh but no, I didn't know that connection that you made for us. So yeah. what what advice do you have now that there's there's just so much out there? Um, what do people what do people avoid if they want to kind of get in? And what what do they avoid? What do they pursue? Well, so I I think th- there are a couple things. First of all, I would say um, really really focus on the quality of your work, and and some of that is get outside the libertarian space. I didn't start here, right? Like I actually went to school. Uh, to work in the the proper entertainment industry, right? Like I I I did not go to get an economics degree and then go this this route of being in a think tank or whatever. <laughs> like a major is, in economics and a minor in video production. <laughs> that you 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 laugh, but that is actually a lot of the people that I've encountered over the last you know ten years or so, interns and people who are trying to get into doing more video production. That is exactly their their route. They were poli sci majors or economics majors or whatever. I would I would highly recommend don't do that. Go if you want to be an artist, go into the arts because the only way that any of this works is if you are competing, if you are genuinely competing with people who are doing this for a living for real, right? Not just in a niche market, but you want to actually be able to compete mainstream, right? And I and I think that um, some of the YouTube videos I've I've put out in the last year have you know seven eight hundred thousand. Uh, views or, or more, if you, I guess, if you count all the, the Facebook stuff. But one of like the um, Wakanda video, I think it's close to 700,000 views right now on YouTube. And, and you know, none of that's paid. Like that's all organic traffic. Um, if I didn't care about the, the quality of the video and, and the, the, you know, actually competing with legit producers – you know, maybe I would sit here and I'd be content that a video got 100 views or 500 views or something. I'd think, oh, a couple thousand is great. I don't. I'm always looking for a much uh, – I'm looking for the ability to produce stuff at a level that's actually competitive with the stuff that everybody else is seeing. And by the way, you have to because nobody nobody actually separates it out like that. There's no – like when you're looking through YouTube, it doesn't go, oh, here's the libertarian category just for you where, <laughs> where you know, no, YouTube goes, what's the, you know, best content that fits your interests and there it goes, you know, it'll give, it'll serve up whatever's good. So that's my first big piece. The other piece too is like actually study storytelling, you know, and I don't mean that in sort of a, like, I mean, study screenwriting, study narrative. Go back to uh, Aristotle. Go back to Euripides. Go back to um, – I mean, there are p- plenty of, of screenwriting books that I'd highly recommend. Um, Sid Field's screenplay. Uh, John Truby is on story. Um, there, um, Actually, Blake Snyder, this guy named Blake Snyder wrote this book called Save the Cat, which I'd, I'd highly recommend. There's, there's a lot of this kind of stuff, but I think the, the biggest piece of advice I have is to actually um, – is actually try to do creative work to the best that 
ability that you can possibly do the creative work. And don't be afraid of criticism either. I mean, don't be afraid of of uh, other people challenging you to do better. Um, one of the things I've seen over the years that's always just been super disappointing is that you just get a lot of people who think small. They just think in terms of being a big fish in a very, very small pond. And that doesn't that's not going to be how we get there yeah. in the end. Well, Sean, I really appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you for spending a lot of time with us here. And uh, where can you you've mentioned doing stuff at Fee on YouTube? What are some of the places that people can find? I mean, obviously we can Google your name, but like where where can we find you on YouTube as our channel? Yeah, I think the the best thing to do um, the the channel that I am spending you know ninety nine percent of my time on right now is is Fee's YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Fee Online. Um, and it's, you can look at all of our other social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's all the same at fee online. Awesome. Thanks, Sean, for being with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.